Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to be looking at two armed conflicts, right, that um, dealt with China in the mid-19th century with the other Western forces of Jin Dynasty. Yep. And this basically we're going to be looking at something that, I guess, is talked about, but in world history quite a bit, but probably not in great detail, at least not um, in high schools, more so in colleges, and that's the Opium Wars, okay? So the two Opium Wars, one from 1839 to 1842, and one from 1856 to 1860, also known as the um, Arrow Wars or the Anglo-French War in China. These foreign powers would try to gain all these commercial privileges in land territory in um, in China. It seriously weakened the. It seriously weakened China, and really, I think, kind of paved the way to like the weakness of China that they had in the late 19th, early 20th century. That led to communism taking over China really in the 50s. You can kind yeah. of trace it back to that and the, the non-trusting of the Western powers. This is their the reason why. Yeah, and I think we'll also finish up with the idea of open door policy in China, late 1800s and early 1900s, like I said, 20th century, because this is it's definitely the effect of this. This is not going to be the longest podcast. I actually foresee this being quite shorter than our usual ones, but we well, usually we'll say that we'll, and then we... We'll see where it goes. We, yeah, then we get going. But I mean, it's right in the title, Opium Wars. I mean, okay, this is a war. This is a drug war. It's a stretch, yeah, but, but the, it's not. Well, it's not, yeah. And, but the British East India Company was their drug dealers. Like they were the Which drug dealers. Which is crazy. Dealers. And all they so. wanted was tea. They just want some tea in return, you know, like here. But again, we'll get to, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So I think what we'll do is we'll just kind of run real quick, uh, just quick background to just a rule in China, the Qing dynasty and kind of what's going on in China at the time and the opening of trade and also at the same time, really restrictive trade, we should say. Um, and then from there, we'll kind of get into the causes of the opium wars. We'll talk about specifically the relationship between Britain and China when it comes to trade. Then we'll talk about the conflict that arises here and how opium gets involved and how that leads to the first opium war. And then we'll talk about the consequences of that, roll over to the second opium war, and then we'll kind of talk about some long-term consequences and maybe hit you guys up with some fun facts. I think that's a good plan, right? Let's go for it. Let's go. Let's go for it. All right. So um, real quick, Ming Dynasty, That's if you ever study... Chinese history, or if you just remember world history, Ming Dynasty ruled China from 1368 until 1644. It was a period that was distinguished mostly by good government, peace, artistic achievements, prosperity, so on and so forth. The Ming Emperor took interest in the common people's welfare, and things were kind of really looking well for China during the Ming Dynasty, but it finally crumbled in 1600, 1644, when a ruling family from the province of Manchuria took over and established the long-live Qing Dynasty, which is what is in place at the time that we are discussing in these particular wars. This Qing dynasty lasts into the 20th century, and at the height, the Qing dynasty gave China some of its ablest emperors and definitely the most stable administrations and economy until it didn't. That's kind of where it comes into play. But yeah. Kanji, which is uh, was a um, Qing emperor from 1736 to 1796, which is kind of where our story starts here, mm-hmm. uh, re- right? it really kind of molded himself into the image of this like ideal ruler 
and he was very benevolent, uh, protector of his people, and kind of stressed loyalty, traditional morality, hard work for the common good, all about farming. And really, the idea was to protect China and its interests. There was very adequate food production in the country, specifically because by 1800, the Chinese population was about 300 million people, which is literally double what it was a century before. There's a lot here that he has to take care of. He's got to ensure the steady flow of funds, really, to build up and feed his people. And that's kind of where we get into this idea of the Qing dynasty trading successfully. I mean, importing foods. Um, they import a lot of food, corn and sweet potatoes, actually from America. But still, China under Qing dynasty was very suspicious and resistant to most yeah, European businesses. Yeah, they didn't trust the West that much. They didn't trust the West. They didn't really want much for the West either, which kind of leads to opium, like we'll talk about. But like opium was nothing new in China. It was introduced, they believe, as early as the 7th century. Mm -hmm. uh, but by 1729, it became like a really big problem that the then emperor actually prohibited the sale in opium. Um, it didn't really do much to hamper the trade, but it was kind of semi under control, but it was still there. They knew of it. And the, the British later discovered a value of the opium trade so, uh, that they determined it was like the beneficial because there was such a demand in the West for Chinese goods like tea, silk, and porcelain. But in the return, there wasn't much of um, demand for Western goods in China. People didn't want it. Answer was opium. The British improved their trade balance by obtaining opium from India and selling it in a lot and for like great profit in China. And they had these giant like opium processing plants. It was basically the British East India Company that was doing this. Had these massive plants in India, they would then take it and then ship it over to China. By 1839, the Chinese government is saying, "Listen, this is getting out of control. There's like millions of addicts, particularly in these port cities." That are it affected all society. They had these opium dens all over the place, and it was becoming a real problem in China that they wanted to start to um, outlaw curtail the, somehow. Yeah, outlaw the sale it, yeah. of it, curtail of it. And then they, I think they even send a letter. The Chinese emperor sends a letter to Queen Victoria saying, "Listen, you know, you know, it's morally, it's not right what you're doing. It's morally wrong because it's, it's opium destroys morals, and it's illegal in your country, but you're selling it to other countries such as China." The fact that it was illegal, you know what I mean, in yeah, England, yeah, and yet so they're they, using it. They totally knew. They were just doing pieces. It's making a profit. They knew they could sell it there. And they were selling tons of the stuff. I think they were selling up to 1,400 tons of uh, opium in China every year, which is a huge amount. And, you know, we should also stress as to why this is happening. So China really is a number one supplier oh, yeah, to England, right, of silk, porcelain, and tea, specifically tea. And there's such China is enjoying massive trade surplus, right? They're exporting more than they're importing, hundred um, percent. The Westerners, particularly Britain, has a trade deficit with China because they're buying more from China than they're actually selling to China. And the one key that the Chinese emperor uh, kind of came up with, which is which is super important for their economy, is that they would only trade this silk, porcelain, and tea, which British people were becoming pretty much addicted to themselves, right? Even though it's not a drug. They could a British could only buy these goods with silver or gold. That was key. Yeah, that was you it. could not yeah, trade it with anything yeah. else, right? Um, Until opium comes. Exactly. And then you have these, um, as you're saying, Tom, like you have these different traders that are, I mean, you know, India's nearby, that are starting to bring opium over and starting to use opium as currency. Because prior to that, the emperor basically said, like, listen, there's nothing to, in the West that China needed. We don't need anything. Like, you know what? Just give us silver and gold. And then you basically have these merchants that take it upon themselves at first to start bringing opium and illegally trading opium for these goods. And then England catches on. Like you said, an actual company, the British East India Company, is like, yeah, they make it, oh, they, all right, this could be a business. 
Yeah, they right. put all their like you know know-how and stuff that they used to process everything else. They just used it to process opium, and it was also they were only allowed, I believe, in one port, right? The port of yep, Catan. That was, that was the that was the only place where they were allowed to trade at this point. That's gonna ha- that's gonna change a little bit as time goes on. So, and like we said, the Chinese are getting sick and tired of this. So they actually, the um, imperial commissioner actually ordered that all the opium stored by British merchants in the warehouses in Catan was confiscated and destroyed. So that started to lead to a lot of like antagonistic feelings between the two because the British are like, hey, you know, you're attacking our, well, the British using it's, like Brit- it's like the Boston those Tea are Party. Goods. Yeah, those are goods. And they, they're going to the British yeah. government saying, listen, what's going on here? You know, like we're not, they're going after our stuff. We're, we not, we're not, they destroyed our supply. This is our, this is our commerce. This is how we make money. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a good point. Like you're saying, it's it basically... No, it's a good point. That's why I made it, man. Come on. Of course it is. But yeah, no, so China's very restrictive with trade with the West, and, and it's only one port. And the British and pretty much any other nation that wants to trade with China can only trade through this one port. And it could only trade with specific Chinese merchants that are allowed, rather, by the government to trade with the outside world. And as far as England's concerned, like there's so much potential to tap into economic potential in China. They're like, why are we limited in this humongous country and empire to just one port? So they really use this as an opportunity, this, this, you know, this event or these events that where you see the merchants are losing their goods because the Chinese um, government is literally destroying them in the port. Um, This is, you know, it's a perfect act to maybe somehow force China into opening up into more trade, which really kind of gets us started into um, the first opium war, which is 1839 to 1842. And what some of the things that kind of led to it was that there was um, the two sides were increasing getting angry at other. Then in July, there was a um, drunken, um, some drunken British sailors killed a couple of Chinese villagers. Do you remember what year that was? 18. The... That was the beginning of the war. So that was 1839. And they just get upset about this. And the British government, which uh, did not want its subjects to be tried in Chinese legal system, they refused to turn the men over to the Chinese courts. Mm-hmm. So hostilities basically broke out um, later on that year. The Chinese blocked the Pearl River, right, which mm-hmm. basically um, goes into um, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Yep. And the British warships come and they destroy that blockade. The, the Chinese at this point, the dynasty, they're, they're no, they can't keep up. Um, they can't compete with the Western technology they can't compete, oh, plus britain yeah. i mean you can't yeah they, with britain it's great britain. They're, the, they're the biggest power in the world and this isn't so and then they're going in here to simply help the british East India company so then 1840 the british um government actually authorizes a military expedition against china and then that june so the following june british warships basically arrive at hong kong and this is going this sets the stage this treaty that we're going to talk about the ensis this sets the stage for what's going on with britain in um with not britain china and hong kong today like this is what lays that yep. groundwork this is the butterfly effect, you know, and the British fleet attacked and occupied uh, Catan in May of 1841. There was really nothing that the um, that the Chinese could do. They fought valiantly, I guess you could say, yep. but they, their forces were totally inferior to what the British had. And then um, every attack was counterattack was taken out. And then by uh, the spring of 1842, the war was pretty much over. And that's when you have the Treaty of Nanking. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's uh, it, was, it was August, I believe, of um, yeah, August 1842. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. 
Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Right. So the peace negotiations, you know, fairly quick, signed in late August. Uh, the provisions were, like you said, butterfly affected, but China is required to pay Britain a large, basically a large sum. Also, Britain receives the island of Hong Kong. That's that becomes obviously going forward important. Um, but the key here is, is Britain finally got what they wanted or rather what their trade companies wanted is that they secured the guarantee from the Chinese emperor that they would open up more ports, that essentially there's going to be more ports that are going to oh. allow British merchants to trade from. Yeah. Five more ports, right? They're called treaty yep. ports. Yep. And they're also, I think they're supposed to also pay $21 million, which is a lot of money yep. to, the, to British, the British, I guess, yep. for like destroying all that opium. So they're paying, you have to pay back the opium that you destroyed. That was killing the people in China. Yep. That's basically what they're going to an interesting one of the port cities, um, which is kind of a small village, uh, becomes you know transforms into a humongous commercial um, empire. You know, a, a really symbol. It's Shanghai. I mean, today yeah. you probably have heard of Shanghai, but this is where Shanghai becomes what it is today. Essentially, from what I read, the Chinese agree to this, but they don't okay. really rush with it. And you know, the yeah. British have They're to stick their, around for a while. Time. Yeah, the British have to stick around for a while and. And kind of exert some more military pressure on the Chinese to finally open up these ports. Uh, one other thing was that the British asked to be granted the most favor- favorable trade partner or nation status. Um, that basically what that meant is that Britain was granted rights, trading rights in China that were not granted to any other foreign countries. So if you know if, if at any point. Um, China wanted to give some other, you know, benefits to a nation, whether they could trade in one area or not. They couldn't because Britain had to have the first dibs on it, basically. Yeah, they, they just basically got like a very strong sphere of influence in China. That's what was going yeah. on there. This is still, this is the age of imperialism. So they're not yeah. in taking over China as far as like, with forces, actually they kind of are, but they're not like, you know, carving up in the colonies like they do in Africa and stuff like that. But what the British are doing here and the other Western powers will start to do is they're all getting their spheres of influence over there, right? They're still carving up China some other way. Yeah. And while they're doing this, that's why, that's why Japan is over there saying like, we don't want this happen to us. And that's going to, one one reason why they have isolation theory. So it's all these butterfly effects is what you're seeing at the same time. Yep. Another thing with this most uh, favorite nation thing is that um, other European nations are now like, wait a second, we want some privileges in China too, which opens up China to a lot of spheres of influence, which is again becomes a huge thing in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But because of this first treaty, Britain actually designated itself that anytime China grants any rights to a region, 
um, within or any form of economic regional rights in China, then Britain will automatically receive the same rights. Like that's yeah, kind of so, what the, the rule yeah, is. So, so they're we're getting even having to do anything. It's a clause in there. They're, they're always right. going to have that first nation status, yep. preferred nation status. All right, so let's uh, let's uh, let's hit up the second opium war. What happens here? I mean, let's go. It's very similar. Well, like you said, the Chinese were slow in adopting these um, this treaty, and there was a lot of, especially in Catan, there was still a lot of like anti-British feelings, and you had the um, the governor there, okay, a man by the name of General Yi. He was inciting a lot of the Can- the Chinese to like annihilate the British. He's like, you know, we don't want them here. Let's let's get rid of them. And he actually seizes a British warship called the Arrow. And he takes all the sailors there. He imprisons them all, throws them all in chains. And this occurred in October of 1856. And it's basically the precursor what led to the Second Opium War, um, which basically began after they, uh, the, the police in Catan boarded the British, regist- the British registered ship, the Arrow, mm-hmm. charged his crew with, sm- with smuggling, arrested them all. And then, it, however, what makes this war more intense is that the British are also joined by the French. The French yeah. come in here. These are two countries. This is the 1850s, right? Think about this. You know, look at some of our other podcasts when we're talking about like Napoleon stuff. And here are the British and French teaming up, right? Yep. Because they want to get rid of, they, they want to make sure that they have their, their trade. They're trying, like you said, they want tea, porcelain, silk. They want those Chinese goods. You know, we want the Chinese goods. So we have to make sure we uh, put the Chinese in their place so we can get what we want from them. That's basically what's going on here. Again, monumental, the fact that these two nations who have been fighting for like hundreds of years all of a sudden are like, all right, yeah, let's come to China. The British send their warships right through the, through the Pearl River all the way to Catan. The French actually join them. So it's like a joint British-French fleet teaming up, yeah. this Anglo-French force, and they occupy Catan in late um, 1857. And there's really nothing that the uh, Chinese can do. They basically, by May of 1853, Allied troops, the, the troops land, British and French troops land, and um, they're basically forced the Chinese into negotiations. And I mean, it takes to. and it takes a few years. It's not you know, it doesn't. This is this is like an ongoing war. Uh, if, you yeah, know, and initially people are dying, and the whole time the opium is still being traded. Yeah, like it's still destroying lives. It's still you know, people are getting addicted. Yeah, the opium war, um, second one lasted from 1856 into 1860. Um, so it's four years. I mean, if you think about it, that's almost equivalent to you know, I mean, by two years, but. Um, equivalent to World War II, like this is, a, you know, lengthwise, yeah, well, there, obviously. Yeah, not, th- there were else. small, um, I think there were small, there was like smaller treaties that did allow certain things to happen during this yeah. time. Like they allowed foreign emissaries to come to Beijing. It gave freedom of movement for the Christian missionaries. They per- permitted some travel into China. Um, there was a negotiation in 1859 that legalized the, the opium to be imported into China. So, it, you know, yeah. It, it, they did have these smaller treaties, but the fighting was still constantly going on during this time. And also, I think it, it, what was the, what made it a little more delayed is that you had an Indian mutiny that was happening, the Sepoy yeah. mutiny, or the first war of independence in India, India that happened at the same time in 1857-59. So that kind of prolonged, I think, the Second Opium War because England had to divert a lot of its forces um, into India to try to yeah. fight this rebellion. And, and I think that's what also led to the second opium war lasting as long as it lasted regardless how long it lasted the end result was very very similar that's basically what happened they'd come up with a treaty the chinese would like be like this is not like good for us so we're not going to sign this treaty and then the french and the british like all of a sudden we're going to just start attacking you again that's basically what happened on and off for like pretty much two three years yep and you know kind of like a nod to like war of 1812 when the british came in and burnt um washington dc in this case what happens is you have the british soldiers 
um, actually in October of 1860, so towards the end of the war, captured Beijing. Uh, Beijing, and after Beijing, they 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 basically plundered it, burned it. Um, they actually burned the emperor's summer palace. Um, you know, it's it's kind of very similar in that respect that they looked at symbolic places like we're here, we're taken over, and that kind of forced the Chinese to sign the Beijing Convention, which basically agreed to observe the treaties, the prior treaties. They also occupied the Forbidden City Palace yeah. in, in Beijing, which was, you know, just like a slap in the face. You know, they didn't burn it, luckily, but they did take it over. So this time around, Britain is a little more, Britain and France are a lot more pushy in a sense of like, now they, they literally want legalization of the opium trade. Yeah, they want, like, yeah, that's it. Opium is legal here and we're, we're allowed to sell it. It's no more backdoor. It's just, this is what's happening. Yep. And we're really sorry that you guys don't like it. And we're really sorry that this is, you know, destroying your social fabric. But at the end of the day, we're not giving you gold. We're not giving you silver. Uh, but we're being nice to trade with you. So we'll give you a whole bunch of drugs. And in return, you're going to continue giving us specifically this tea and silk and, and whatever else that we ask for. Any form of foreign imports for Britain and France, China was also forced to sign and, and basically give these exports, or rather imports, British and, and French imports, no like transit duties. There was no tariffs on them. So yeah, the British yeah. could trade freely and the French could trade freely with China. I mean, this is so one-sided, it's not even yeah, funny. It opens up 10 more ports to European commerce. So now there's yep. even more ports that are open. So it's even more, the flood of goods is going to be even more intense. Yeah. Um, the foreign traders and missionaries can travel anywhere in China now. Right? So it's pretty much like it's open season now in China. And nice. other countries are going to start pumping. Even the United States, they're kind of preoccupied in the 1860s with some other stuff. But yeah, but we'll get in there gonna, soon. Eventually, they're going to, uh, the United States is going to come in there too. And we all know what's going to happen uh, in Japan also. So, Yeah, so good segue to a study of a long-term effect of all this is that basically this leads to, for us in American history, especially teaching in American history, uh, teaching classes, this brings us to the open door policy. Um, which is which yeah. is a statement of principles that was brought up by the United States in 1899 and 1900, because all of a sudden the United States wakes up and they're like, wait, we want some equal privileges among countries trading in China as well. And what we need to realize is by then, by 1890, so within 30 years after the Second Opium War, this truly just op opens the gates. And China is just, I wouldn't say overthrown, because they're, they're still there. The dynasty's still in charge, the Qing dynasty. Yeah. We just have what is known as spheres of influence. Various countries basically do, you know, specifically Great Britain, Germany, France, Italy, Japan, and Russia. Um, they go into China and just claim areas, and this they're like, ours, "This yeah. is this is ours." Mostly, Anything mostly happens port, port areas and stuff like that. Anything coming yep. in here, and basically, you're going to negotiate through us if you want to trade in this area. Exactly, so they have their own yep. little parts of China, and like you said, it did weaken China. The the dynasty winds up falling, I think, another fifty years later. Yeah, like 1911, 1912, and then eventually it's going to become communist, as we know. Yeah, and it's you know Great Great Britain still holds the most interest in China than any other power, even at this time during this like so-called uh, open door policy aspect. And by eighteen late eighteen hundreds, we are now a world power. We just won our own war against Spain, so we're like an empire. And it's interesting because like, oh hey, what do empires do in in the East? Oh, they go into China. You know, like there's all these economic segments and they're dominated by these various great powers. So therefore, United States also needs to subjugate, divide this country. They want to make um, sure we get what we want, too. Exactly. Yeah. So, And that's why China has such a distrust. Oh, to the West. 100 percent. Well, I think it's important too to understand that that's also where we're seeing the issues with Hong Kong today. Like this is what created that those treaties that we talked about. That's what ceded Hong Kong to the British. They eventually give Hong Kong 
self-determination, right? Somewhat of their own control, right? And then in mm-hmm. the 1999, and then, but China is still saying, no, it's part of, you know, that's that whole issue that you're seeing even today. Is Hong Kong its own country? Is Hong Kong part of China? Well, I guess, that, let's see, told you it was going to be a short one. Ah, which is you know, a little bit of information. This is like, you can listen to it, get a little bit about it, and go write your paper on it. Yeah. Or, or just go and find a book. Who finds books? No one reads books. Ah, there's people that read books. I read books. But you I write books. There's a difference. That is true. I write and read books. Yeah, However. Cheap plug. Cheap plug. That was not a cheap plug. You didn't want to set it up. I just spiked I know. It. Exactly. That's a softball. I'm like, I'm like throwing yeah. it out there for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, man. I'm helping you out. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We do appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. If you have any questions, comments, or anything else you really want to ask us about, you can. So please feel free to reach out. And I guess that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.